Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Lipvac, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joshua Rothman about his book, The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America, published by Basic Books in 2021. Dr. Rothman is a professor of history at the University of Alabama. The Ledger and the Chain tells a sprawling history of slave traders in America. Often presented as outcasts and social pariahs, slave traders were often instead wealthy and respected members of their communities. Dr. Rothman explores the lives and careers of Isaac Franklin, John Armsfield, and Rice Ballard to show just what the work of a domestic slave trader looked like and the devastating effects their actions had on enslaved people. By weaving together a history of the lives of these men who created one of the most powerful slave trading operations in America, Dr. Rothman is able to show how slavery's expansion and growth occurred up to the Civil War. Dr. Rothman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I guess to get started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this project, why you decided to study this? Sure. Uh, So after I had finished my last book, I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do next. And, you know, oddly, I came to the topic in part uh, because I was interested in biography as a form. Um, I wasn't, I didn't have a, a particular sense of what exactly I wanted to work on, who exactly I wanted to work on, but I knew I wanted to try to take on the project of, um, of, of exploring a life from beginning to end and trying to, to gauge the significance of that life in American history. And, you know, I, I'm a scholar of race and slavery in the American South. So I, you know, that that's sort of my wheelhouse. But I knew I didn't want to work on um, politicians, generals, uh, plantation owners. Um, I, I was a little wary of trying to tackle the life of, you know, someone like Frederick Douglass or sort of, you know, a, a, a kind of prominent sort of enslaved fugitives who, who then became sort of famous during the, the, the years before the Civil War. But my last book had focused uh, um, on the expansion of the Cotton South. And so the slave trade was a lot of the part of that story. And I I don't know, it occurred to me more and more as I was thinking about things that scholars had paid a fair amount of attention to the slave trade, but we really didn't know a lot about slave traders themselves other than kind of what the cliches and stereotypes about them were. Um, obviously we knew some things, but I, I really hadn't seen very models of very, very many models of people exploring, uh, what the life of a slave trader was like. And so immediately my attention turned to Isaac Franklin. Um, you really can't read about the domestic slave trade in the United States without coming across Franklin and Armfield. So initially, actually the project was going to be a biography just of Isaac Franklin, but It quickly became clear to me that um, that that biography as a form could be useful, but that the story actually was much bigger than Isaac Franklin himself, that it really couldn't be told in isolation from his business partners. And that ultimately the story of Isaac Franklin and his partners was really the story of the slave trade itself um, from its its uh, uh, the time it really starts to grow. In the in the late 18th century, uh, through its demise during the Civil War, so the, the, that's a very long way of saying that I had started on this project, brought to it by one set of ideas and one uh, um, sort of driving motivation, but it very quickly, as books sometimes do, became something very very different. 
And I think for the purposes of this book, it works really well because, you know, as you said, it seems like, you know, you wanted to talk about just Isaac Franklin, but having read it, I certainly can't imagine that story without sort of insight in isolation without these other characters that are um, present and his other business partners and everything like that. And it sort of all blends together really well into like this, you know, biography of almost this profession, this operation itself. Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, thank you, and I think that that's exactly right. I think that it, it you read the book now, and you sort of can't imagine kind of extracting one thread from the story. Really, the more I got into it, the more it was clear to me that the study of of these particular men and their operation um, it really opened up a whole world of what the domestic slave trade itself looked like, the ebbs and flows of the trade over time, um, the lives of the thousands of enslaved people that, uh, that Franklin and Armfield, uh, um, you know, uh, trafficked and held captive and, and traded as part of their operation. Um, I, I really, with hindsight, I really, you know, it, it, doing Isaac Franklin made sense at the time, but it very, very quickly became clear that that was not really what the, the, the whole story was. And so in the beginning of the book, one of the things that you um, sort of tackle first is, you know, how they're getting to to the places they are, what sort of, that per, sort of process looks like and how that fits within sort of the broader history of slavery's expansion into um, Western territories or at least sort of the old West. And so what role did Western migration play in the spread of slavery? So, you know, the the. The story of of the slave trade in the United States obviously takes in the transatlantic trade as well. Uh, the transatlantic trade had been going on for centuries by the time of American independence. Um, but at the time of American independence and at the time of the drafting and then the ratification of the Constitution, there was a moment where it seemed like slavery might actually be losing momentum in, in the early republic. Um, you know, the, the tobacco economy of the Chesapeake that had really been sort of the powerhouse um, of, of slavery on mainland North America, along with uh, um, probably sort of the rice economy in the low country. Uh, the tobacco economy had gone into decline, partially as a consequence of agricultural factors, partially as a consequence of trade disruptions during the revolution. And really, they're you know, the, the, the framers of the Constitution are kind of coming out of things in the 1780s and thinking, well, Slavery is sort of a problem now, um, politically, economically, morally, everything it takes in. But it, it looks like over time, it'll be less of a problem. And so that's where you get this provision in the Constitution that says, OK, we're going to we're going to allow basically slaveholders in the lower south to continue importing enslaved people for another generation. Um, but then after that, we're going to cut it off. And then slavery hopefully will kind of slowly, you know, we, they, they had no intentions of abolishing it, but they figured it would sort of dwindle in significance over time. But of course, what ends up happening is something completely different. Uh, what ends up happening is uh, by the 1790s and particularly the early 1800s, um, you get the evolution of the cotton economy. Uh, you get the invention of the cotton gin. You get the Louisiana Purchase. You get uh, 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 an uptick in um, efforts to displace and dispossess Native Americans in, in what was then called the Southwest. Um, and you really have tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of white farmers 
who start moving into places like Western Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. And they really want to capitalize on uh, uh, the cultivation of cotton, the ability to uh, both trade that within the United States and overseas as part of the early industrial revolution. Um, and in order to maximize their opportunities in that part of the country, in order to maximize their profits, um, they are going to depend on enslaved labor. And but, it, but in the meantime, of course, the transatlantic slave trade has been abolished. You couldn't legally at least import people from overseas anymore. And so that creates opportunities for domestic slave traders. So Western migration is critical to the spread of slavery in the abstract, but it's also central to the evolution of an opportunity for a domestic slave trade that would replace the transatlantic trade that had been uh, um, that had been ended. And I, for me, um, being what I sort of study, um, sort of intersects with this to, at some certain points. One of the things that I remember. Uh, that I, when I first started studying slavery, um, especially in undergrad, not knowing much about it, was just how much the sort of Western uh, migration of slavery, the selling of enslaved people from the upper south um, down to the lower south and west became such a sort of, you know, big powerhouse industry as you show in this book um and one of the favorite things that i sort of remember coming across uh was you know during the constitutional convention um when at one point they're debating slavery and george mason from virginia is saying that we need to get rid of the international slave trade because it's an abomination and one of the south carolina um, delegates is basically saying, you know, we all know why you actually want to get rid of slavery. If we, um, the international slave trade, if you get rid of the international slave trade, you get to sell off all of your excess slaves and you get to do it at a higher price. Yeah, no. And that's, that's absolutely true. And, and that, um, you know, the, 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 the position that Virginia was in in particular made it easy for someone like George Mason to, you know, sort of get up there and, and, and sort of morally posture about slavery. Um, but there were certainly, there were also Virginians who were very sort of clear minded about what the implications of, of abolishing the transatlantic trade were for Virginia. And, and, you know, it delegates from the lower South, they understood exactly what was going to happen. Uh, you know, they, like I said, the, the, the abolition of the transatlantic trade, um, it, it's not about abolishing slavery, uh, as an institution, um, the motivations for it, they are complicated. Certainly there are sincere moral objections um, by some people, um, but the, the calculations involved of whether or not to abolish the transatlantic trade are, there are a weird mix of sort of moral reasons, economic reasons, political reasons. Um, there are a lot of calculations that go into that. Um, but yes, that, that, that is certainly one of them. The idea that um, if, the, if the supply of enslaved people um, is cut off, the supply of new enslaved people is cut off from Africa and the Caribbean, then the value of enslaved people who are already in the United States um, is going to rise accordingly. And that, um, and that, that turned out to be sort of true. 
And so looking as, you know, this whole sort of history moves forward, going into the, you know, 18 teens and the 1820s in particular, one of the things that you illustrate through these people's lives is just how much the domestic slave trade itself uh, changes during this period. And so what's going on there? So there are a lot of things that are happening uh, really between the 1810s and into the early 1830s. Um, so the, the, like I said before, the slave trade, you know, it has its own sort of biography. It has its own sort of life story of, of ebbs and flows over time, of growth and, and withdrawal, of, of being impacted by, uh, by, by financial markets and so on. But what's happening in the 1810s and 1820s is, is first you have the War of 1812, and the War of 1812 accomplishes several things uh, that relate to the slave trade. One thing it accomplishes is the, um, the displacement and dispossession of, of the Creek Nation in particular, uh, but of Indian nations, started, starting the massive dispossession that would happen later of Indians in the Lower South. Um, they're, uh, uh, the creeks are, are effectively cleared off the land, uh, particularly in Alabama and, and parts of Georgia. Um, so that is one thing that's going on. All of a sudden, there's all of this real estate that is uh, uh, expropriated by the federal government that is then sold to white farmers. And that creates uh, uh, you know, a, a, a big space for slavery to expand into. But there's another consequence of the War of 1812, which, of course, is... Um, you know, eliminating effectively the threat of the British and the British Empire on the southwestern frontier of what was the United States. Um, it provides security for Western farmers who are trying to uh, get involved in the cotton economy and other elements of the southwestern economy. Uh, it secures the city of New Orleans uh, for uh, uh, for the United States as a, as an export hub. And New Orleans, of course, becomes the the largest city in the American South and, and, and one of the most important cities in the United States. And so what happens in the immediate aftermath of the War of 1812 is there's an enormous economic boom. Um, trade restrictions are lifted. Um, expansion can happen seemingly without obstacle. Um, and so the profit margins for slave traders in the late 1810s are spectacular. Um, you know, but the, the, the estimates of, of profit margins really are as big as they would ever be in American history for that sort of for that sort of moment. And it really is a moment because what happens in 1819 is there's an economic panic and the economic panic uh, drives the price of cotton down. It leads to sort of economic collapse in various sectors of the economy. And so there's a bit of a lull in the slave trade in the early 1820s. But what starts to happen by the late 1820s is you have the cycle really begins again. Um, you have the election of Andrew Jackson to the presidency. Uh, Jackson, of course, one of the very first things he does is talk about how important it is to, uh, to, to eliminate an Indian presence uh, 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 in the West, in the United States. Um, and that, that particularly manifests itself in the Southwest. Um, and so you have a renewed drive to continue to expand the cotton frontier, to continue to displace Native Americans. Um, you have a massive influx of banking capital that starts to happen in that part of the country. All of it redounds to the benefits of slave traders. Um, and 
Parallel to this, there is a sort of evolution of the business model of the slave trade itself, which is that it becomes increasingly professionalized. Um, the mechanisms of moving people from the upper South to the lower South become more, um, they become more standardized, um, which is not to say there aren't innovations in the trade, but the, the, the process by which you would move people from point A to point B becomes a sort of standard operation. Um, and so by the time Franklin and Armfield go into business together, which is uh, uh, in the late 1820s, they create their company in 1828, they are really seeing what the future is going to hold for the slave trade. They see a possibility for something that could be um, not just more professionalized as a business, but something that could happen on a scale that could make people just immensely, immensely wealthy. And so they're really, they're, they're, they're coming into the trade at, um, at, at a particular moment where they see opportunities for growth. And one of the things that you just mentioned there in telling the story of how these things are changing over this time period is you mentioned how New Orleans becomes one of the most important cities in the United States, the biggest city in the South. Um, and New Orleans and Louisiana just generally plays a big role in this story, um, in the story of slavery, just generally. And so what role did New Orleans play in the domestic slave trade? And what were these traders' relationship with the city itself? Yeah, so those are that's sort of two questions, and they're 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 sort of separate, they're separate answers. So the city of New Orleans, as it relates to the slave trade, is um, enormously important. Um, the city of New Orleans ultimately is the largest slave trading hub in the Lower South. Um, the, the, the estimates of, of the number of enslaved people bought and sold simply in the city of New Orleans is, is roughly 135,000 people. Um, and that, you know, by itself, that's, you know, a, a, a about you know, 10 or 15 percent of the, the total number of people who are migrated, forcibly migrated across state lines before the Civil War. Um, you know, the, the, the city is the center of the cotton export economy and the sugar export economy. Um, it's a place with, a, with obviously a very large port. Um, so enslaved people are not only being walked from the Upper South to the Lower South, that's sort of the, the most familiar model and kind of the, the, the main model that we understand of forced migration. But you also have a very large number of enslaved people who are actually being sent by ship. You know, we, we think of the sort of the transatlantic slave trade ends and, well, the shipping of enslaved people ends. But it doesn't. The shipping of enslaved people simply moves to a domestic model instead of a, a transoceanic model. And so you have slave traders, and Franklin and Armfield do a lot of this, um, who are shipping enslaved people from uh, Baltimore, Alexandria, um, Norfolk, um, you know, even as the slave trade evolves even further down the East Coast, and they are being brought down the Atlantic coast, up around Florida, into the Gulf of Mexico, um, in, into Gulf ports. Um, it, you know, sometimes that's the port of Mobile. Eventually it would be ports like Galveston, but the biggest port where enslaved people are being, uh, um, you know, sort of the, the, the end of the road of their forced migration, um, is in the city of New Orleans. So, New Orleans has an enormous infrastructure for the slave trade. Um, it also has a, a, a large number of auction houses um, where people from the lower Mississippi Valley would, would, would both 
come to buy people, but also to sell enslaved people. So uh, uh, the slave trade is, is a really vibrant part of the New Orleans economy. Now, the relationship of slave traders to the city of New Orleans is a little more complicated than that because the city of New Orleans, as time goes on and as the slave trade becomes larger and larger and larger in the city, you start to have residents of the city who begin to get a bit uncomfortable with that. And they're not really uncomfortable with the buying and selling of enslaved people. They're uncomfortable with the fact that there are, first of all, there are so many enslaved people being brought into the city. The numbers are just tremendously big. Um, And they're not entirely comfortable with the visibility of the slave trade. Um, You know, the the city of New Orleans proper in the 1820s and 30s, it really is just the French Quarter. Um, There are certainly suburbs, um, you know, with the the Faubourg Marigny and the Faubourg St. Marie, um, up, up, up river and, and below the river, but the city itself, the boundaries are really just the French quarter. And so people living in the heart of the city start to say, you know what, this is maybe sort of an epidemiological problem. Um, there are, uh, uh, you know, large numbers of enslaved people being kept in, in, in pens and compounds in the city. If people start getting sick, that could be a real problem. Um, they don't like that that slave traders seem to be doing their business every place you looked. And so the, the city actually has regulations on the trade beginning in the 1820s where they effectively push slave traders out of the city. So what you end up having is a weird sort of geography where auction sales could continue to happen within city limits. But the 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 buying and selling of enslaved people by out-of-state slave traders, that actually takes a geographic form where you have it kind of below the city and above the city. Um, so Franklin and Armfield, for example, set up on, on the Marigny side of Esplanade Avenue. Esplanade Avenue is basically the, the downriver boundary of the city of New Orleans. They just set up across the street. Um, and you have plenty of slave traders who do that. You have plenty of slave traders who just set up right on the other side of Canal Street, which is, of course, the upriver boundary of the French Quarter. Um, and so, you know, the slave, and, and that changes over time too. Eventually, they they loosen up the rules by the late antebellum period. But if you look at the geography of the slave trade in the city of New Orleans, even in the 1840s and the 1850s, what you have are these sort of clusters of trader operations that are just outside the French Quarter on both sides of the quarter. So it's, you know, that, that, that doesn't mean that slave traders really couldn't operate in the city. Eventually they can and they do, but it's, um, it's a complicated relationship where traders are very much part of the economy of the city, and yet there are sort of some rules about what they can and can't do. And I find that so interesting the way that sort of develops over time, uh, mostly because it's just, you know, as you've said, you know, this sort of slave economy and the trading of enslaved people becomes such a sort of vital part of New Orleans, which is what makes it uh, in some cases, in some instances, you know, the city that it is. And yet people don't like it being there to to the extent that it is for certain reasons you can imagine um for example for some of our listeners who are are less knowledgeable of this history you know a lot of people would be afraid that you would have a slave insurrection or something like that yeah that's that's definitely part of the equation too yeah 
Yeah. And so it's just it. you have all these reasons why they're against having it there, but it's never because they're necessarily against slavery, as you mentioned. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the, they're, they're, like I said, there's a lot of uh, um, look, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of discount the idea that there were people even in the lower South who sincerely had kind of deep moral ambivalence about slavery itself. But the idea that there would be um, uh, any kind of uh, serious sort of anti-slavery momentum in that part of the country, it's just absurd. I mean, there's there's no there's no serious contemplation that slavery or even the slave trade really is going to be limited or contained in any significant way. It's really a question of management rather than of of abolition. And so like any sort of business or op- or business operation, um, slave traders obviously had financial troubles. And so what sort of financial troubles did slave traders experience? And what did those troubles actually mean for the domestic slave trade itself, for enslaved people and the whatnot? So again, there's several questions embedded in there and they are, they're complicated um, because the way money worked before the Civil War was very complicated. Um, there is really no such thing before the Civil War as a single singular American dollar. Um, the dollar is the currency, but every bank effectively is producing its own banknotes. And so the, the challenges of exchange rates between banknotes, right? A a dollar that might be worth a dollar in one place, the farther away it gets from the bank that issues it. And depending in addition to that on the, uh, uh, the financial stability of that bank, it varies. And so, you know, and, and, and slave traders are, if they could, they preferred to work on a cash business. Um, because, you know, they, they, they travel a lot. They didn't want to have to come back and collect debts if they could avoid it. Um, so the complexities of money make financial, the financial situation of slave traders in turn equally complicated. Um, and once you layer, uh, uh, credit on top of that, right? Because there are certainly slave traders who will work on, on credit, who will sell enslaved people, on credit, um, who will, they, they really don't buy enslaved people on credit. That's pretty rare. Purchases are almost always made in cash, but sales could be made on credit. And Franklin and Armfield do a lot of credit business. This is one thing that, that enables them to become so big and so successful. But the problem is, is not just that money is so complicated, but because money is so complicated, because there really isn't, uh, uh, um, a lot of uh, there, there's no sort of central bank per se. The, the Bank of the United States is as close to a central bank as you would get. There's a lot of fluctuation in the American economy. The booms are very big, but the busts are very big. They came around really every 20 years or so. There is a financial panic of some kind or another. Um, and so Slave traders, in terms of the finances of it, they're always walking a very fine line. Um, They need a lot of cash at their disposal to make their business work. Um, If they've loaned out, uh, uh, if they've extended credit to sell enslaved people, if something happens in the interim while they're trying to collect their debts, they can lose everything. Um, The prices of cotton 
fluctuate a reasonable amount, right? Sometimes they steadily rise, but they go up and down. And the price of enslaved people broadly tracks with the price of cotton. So, you know, they might buy enslaved people in one place thinking they can get a certain return. But by the time they've moved the enslaved people from point A to point B, the cotton economy can turn on them. Um, and all of a sudden, their profit margins are not what they thought they were going to be. Um, smaller traders in particular can get caught out by these sorts of financial situations. Um, and then, of course, you have situations like financial panics. Um, the panic of 1819 that I mentioned before is one. But the really big one that, that has an impact both on slave traders, on the slave trade, and on enslaved people is the Panic of 1837. Um, that is really a panic that is that owes itself to an overheated cotton economy, to massive amounts of investment and, and overextensions of credit and, and, and banking capital in the Lower South. And so when the economy crashes in 1837, the cotton economy comes crashing down. Uh, prices for enslaved people plummet. Um, lots of slave traders are caught out as a consequence of this. Um, but of course, the people who ultimately suffer the most, no matter what, whether the economy booms or the economy busts, are enslaved people themselves. Um, you know, when the economy is booming, uh, the slave trade is booming, and so more and more of them are being bought and sold. But even when the economy busts, um, Slaveholders who already own enslaved people, enslaved people are usually their most valuable asset. And so if they're facing bankruptcy, ultimately they might sell their land. But the first thing they're going to sell are the enslaved people themselves. They're going to try to bail themselves out. And so, you know, it's not surprising, of course, but it, it, when you, you look at it in terms of the finances of it, it's always enslaved people who are going to suffer as a consequence of the slave trade, whether it's going well or going poorly. Um, they're going to end up bearing the brunt of, of, of white people and their sort of financial adventures. And I think one of the sort of really important contributions of this work here is how you are able to show how Franklin, Armsfield, and Ballard are viewed by the community at large, the people that they work with, the people that are around them, um, and pretty much everyone in between. And Slave traders have this sort of reputation in scholarly works as sort of, you know, being outcast. They're usually seen, presented as being seen as, you know, the lower sort, just unruly, that, you know, slave slaveholders themselves don't really like them, even if they have to do business with them. But you really show sort of a different sort of story that's going on here. And so how were at least these slave traders and slave traders in general viewed in the country? And what does their sort of reputation mean to this history? Yeah, so that that's a good question. And, and, and to be fair, I do think that the scholarly uh, take on slave traders has has evolved. Um, and I think that more and more scholars and certainly scholars before me, um, I think of people like Michael Tadman, I think of people like Edward Baptist, um, you know, who, who have actually taken a look at, at, at the reputation of slave traders. And they're like, you know, it's maybe not exactly what uh, uh, what a lot of white Southerners said for a long time. And I think a lot of historians sort of uh, uh, adopted as as what must have been for a long time. Um because the, the story that gets told really beginning even while the slave trade is going on is that, um, you know, slave traders were 
the kind of the, the really the dregs of society, right? The kinds of people who took advantage of slaveholders when they were financially vulnerable. They were the people who you never really could trust when they showed up in a community. They're always sort of shady businessmen. Um, you know, they, they are responsible for sort of the worst excesses of American slavery, all the sort of family separations, all the brutal violence. Slaveholders always said, you know, that, that, that slave, slave traders were really the worst in that regard. And as a consequence of that, they also said that, look, you know, uh, slaveholders, they do business with slave traders when they have to, they really don't like to. Um, and certainly slave traders were not the kind of people who you would associate with outside of a business setting. And that is a sort of uh, 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 what I call in the book, I mean, it's, it's effectively pro-slavery propaganda. Um, and, you know, and, and certainly outside of the South, uh, uh, particularly among anti-slavery activists, yes, I mean, that is certainly true. Anti-slavery activists find slavery abhorrent. And of course, they find slave traders, uh, um, you know, they are, they're man stealers, right? Soul drivers. Um, they really are sort of the worst of the worst. But even before the Civil War, there were people who took a good look at this. They said, you know what? All the stuff that slaveholders say about how they feel about the slave trade and slave traders, it doesn't actually appear to be true, at least in not in, the, in, a, in, a, uh, not in a sort of abstract, systematic way. What you have instead is a situation where, um, you know, the, the sort of fly by night slave traders, right? People who, um, you know, might show up in a town. Nobody knew who they were. They came out of nowhere. They might show up with 15 or 20 people who they're just trying to unload. Um, I mean, I, you know, there's no way to talk about the slave trade without being uh, uh, utterly crass in some ways, but it really is the equivalent of, you know, people who show up with merchandise off the back of a truck. You just don't know kind of where it comes from. And so, you know, there is certainly suspicion and disdain for operators like that. Um, you know, there are, uh, 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 but, but that's true in the same way that, that white Southerners were suspicious of any itinerant business people, right? Um, you know, they're also suspicious of like, uh, um, you know, Yankee clock peddlers were like the, the other sort of stereotype of kind of the shady businessman who you could never trust. But if you actually look at how the slave trade unfolds over time and you look at as it becomes more and more of a profession and more and more of a big business. And Franklin and Armfield, what I argue in the book is they really are sort of the turning point and the model for what a, a what a professionalized large scale slave trade business could be. You know, you have slave traders who set up regular offices in cities all over the South. Um, they have relationships with politicians and merchants and especially with bankers. Um, this was a different kind of slave trader. These were slave traders who were respectable businessmen who ran uh, uh, supposedly a reputable and trustworthy operation. These are the kinds of men that white Southerners, uh, uh, slaveholders deal with all the time. And they have no problem dealing with them. They actually were the, the more, the more, the bigger your business were and the more reliable it seemed, the better your reputation would become. And so you know, people like Franklin and Armfield, there's no indication at all that they face any kind of, uh, of, of, you know, social, political, or economic opprobrium as a consequence of their operation. It's simply a lie to say that they were social outcasts. Um, not only are they respectable businessmen, 
But when they get out of the slave trade, um, you know, merchants and bankers and all leaders of Southern society, they turned to these guys for business advice because they were good businessmen. They knew what they were doing. They knew their way around the dollar. Um, when it comes to socializing with them, there's there's no indication that they face any kind of problem socializing with with wealthy elite people for the rest of their lives. Um, and they end up, all three of them die. Uh, uh, well, Armfield is, Armfield's fortune suffer as a consequence of the Civil War. But through the era of the Civil War, all of them are extremely wealthy men. All of them are extremely reputable. And they're hardly the only slave traders that's true of. The idea that, 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 um, that, that the slave traders as a whole were uh, kind of these social pariahs, it's, it's a myth. Um, it simply isn't the case. Yeah, and I really like how you described it um, in the beginning as sort of pro-slavery propaganda in a way that, you know, it sort of absolves some people of whatever guilt or blame or what have you might be going around and protects some semblance of a reputation to others. But in reality, it's just meant to um, almost just convince people who don't really know what this system actually looks like from the inside of something that doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, uh, you know, and, and, and it's a myth that um, it lasts for a long time, right? Because part of what it does is, as you say, it, it allows slaveholders to displace whether it's things they're uncomfortable with or simply things that they're getting criticized for. Right. They're able to say, look, that's not really what we're about. That's not what slavery is about. If you really want to find those things, you look at the slave trade and slave traders. They are sort of really where all this bad stuff comes from. Um, but but of course, then it becomes even after slavery is over in the same way that it's pro-slavery propaganda, it becomes lost cause propaganda. Right. The idea that when, when even after slavery is over, the story that. Uh, purveyors of the lost cause offer about slavery is that, you know, not only in their vision is slavery not the cause of the Civil War, but slavery itself really wasn't that bad, right? Slavery was was something that was rooted in paternalism, um, the sale of enslaved of enslaved people, and breaking up of enslaved families was something that really didn't happen that often. And of course, slave traders become your sort of run of the mill villain in that story. And what happens then, of course, is in the same way that the lost cause becomes something that is, um, if not embraced, at the very least tolerated and accepted by white people all over the country, right? I mean, you know, Gone with the Wind is the kind of, uh, 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 is a, um, you know, is a movie that is immensely successful all over the country. I mean, people line up in New York every day for weeks on end to see this movie, right? In the same way that the lost cause becomes broadcast and almost embraced by the country as a whole, as a way of, of kind of moving past the civil war, the story of the slave trade and slave traders also goes national. Um, and I think nationally what happens is it's not just a way of minimizing the role that slavery played in the civil war. It's a way of minimizing the role that slavery played in the development of the national economy more broadly, right? If you can tell yourself that slavery really maybe wasn't what we were fighting about and the slave trade was really kind of the, 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 this sort of weird offshoot and, and kind of the, the worst element of slavery, but not really typical of how slavery worked. Well, then you can tell yourself that the, that 
commerce in enslaved people really wasn't that important to the development of the economy as a whole. And when you actually look at it, that isn't really entirely true either. And so before I let you go, you know, once again, we have this great book um, by Dr. Joshua Rothman, The Ledger in the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America. And so we have this in front of us, and I always encourage our listeners to become readers and pick up the book for themselves. But what might you be working on next? And, you know, this book just came out this month. Uh, there's sort of a global pandemic still going on. <laughs> and so if you want to say I'm just taking a break, that is completely fine. So I'm not really good at taking breaks, uh, but I am sort of trying to figure out exactly what I'm going to do next. Um, I'll be honest with you and tell you that, you know, look, this this is my third book. I've been working on slavery for for several decades. Uh, You know, this is what I this is what I do research wise. It's what I'm interested in. And it's it's really what I work on. Um, But this book I found. really immensely challenging and difficult in ways that I probably should have anticipated, but I really didn't. Um, I, I thought that that working on the slave trade and even on slave traders was, uh, you know, I knew it was going to be absolutely hideous, but slavery itself is absolutely hideous. So I, I, it didn't occur to me that this is going to be uh, sort of at a different level psychologically than anything else I'd worked on before, but it was. Um, it was really, really hard to live with this story for a long time. And so I, I'm, I'm thinking about what I want to work on next, but I, I don't want to say that that my goal for whatever I work on next is going to be lighter, <laughs> um, right? I mean, I, I'm obviously comfortable with dark subjects or I wouldn't work on what I work on, but I, I, I am sort of thinking I might want to work on something, uh, uh, you know, in the in the age of emancipation, uh, maybe something that's sort of in Reconstruction or the Gilded Age, something where uh, uh, the, the the kind of weight of slavery itself, at least, is not part of the equation. I'm under no illusion that you know emancipation is the end of the story. I I, I obviously. Uh, uh, entirely understand and and I, I think work on reconstruction is is showing us more and more of just how many challenges are still left and how much violence there still is um, and how much goes wrong uh, after emancipation and how much enslaved people who then become freed people are effectively abandoned after the Civil War um, but nonetheless I think it's a different kind of story once slavery as an institution is no longer present and so I'm I'm not sure what I what form that's going to take for me, but but that's sort of the direction I think that I'd like to head in next. And I think we could all sort of understand, you know, what having to sit with these stories does to someone. I think, you know, a lot of people don't quite think about that when they read pick up a history book and read it and think about what it means to actually have to, you know, research this, um, read through these stories, analyze them. Um, and put it all together for someone else to look at and all the things that, you know, don't make it into there that might not make it into the story because of how bad it is. I mean, there's a lot of, look, the, the, the book is a, is a, is a challenging read. It's a difficult read. Um, but yes, you are absolutely right there. There's a lot of stuff that, that didn't make it into the book that is, um, yeah, I mean that, that, 
that really sort of you sit in the archive, you just, you have to take a, you have to take a step away just to breathe um, because you'll come across things that are just, they literally take your breath away. You just, you, all of a sudden you find your, you, you find yourself in the archive and you've, you've tensed up and you realize you're not, you're really just not breathing and you have to get up and, and walk around a little bit. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's hard. That's all I could say. Well, I'm sure when your next book comes out, um, whatever topic it may be on, we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, Dr. Rockman, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much, Derek. I really appreciate it.